0: But how do we know all this? I will tell you all that another time. The head has many sources of information. For the moment, I speak only to inspire you. I speak that you may know what can be done, what shall be done here. This institute, Dio Mio, it is for something better than housing and vaccinations and faster trains and curing the people of cancer. It is for the conquest of death, or for the conquest of organic life, if you prefer. They are the same thing. It is to bring out of that cocoon of organic life which sheltered the babyhood of mind the new man, the man who will not die, the artificial man free from nature. Nature is the ladder we have climbed up by. Now we kick her away. This is Men With Chest, the podcast that pursues objective truth, goodness, and beauty, where we go back to the great books that made the West and give warning to the fate that awaits mankind should we not cultivate virtue. Hello and welcome to chapter 8. I'm going to jump right into the summary here. Wither berates Miss Hardcastle for her attempted arrest of Jane. She says that the head will see it as overstepping her bounds, especially as they want to obtain Jane freely. If they could have arrested her, they would have never bothered with embarrassing themselves by bringing Mark to Belberry. The fairy says that she was acting for their good, and that the head can't possibly get upset with her trying to obtain Jane for their goal. She objects to Wither's accusations that she handled the case either lewdly or crudely. Wither says they need it to assess her humanely and scientifically, and not use fear. The head wants to see Miss Hardcastle now, and she says she needs a drink just to see the head. She and Wither then go together through a maze of corridors until they come to a door, They speak into a tube and are granted entrance by Philostrato, who gives them instructions on what to do or say in the presence of the head. They then enter the room. Jane is allowed to rest for as long as she likes at St. Anne's and is given reading material. Mrs. Maggs brings her tea and tells her that a Mr. Bultitude is in the bathroom presently, but that she will get him out so that Jane can bathe. When Mrs. Maggs leaves, however, Jane doesn't wait and goes into the bathroom. To her surprise, Mr. Bultitude is a large brown bear. Jane flees in tear, though Mrs. Maggs returns and tells her that he is harmless. Jane and Mrs. Maggs have a rather cold exchange, where Jane seems to take offense to Mrs. Maggs calling Mrs. Dimble by the affectionate title of Mother Dimble. Mrs. Maggs eventually leaves, and after Jane bathes and has tea, she goes downstairs. She finds all the women in the kitchen and learns that it is the women's day to do the chores. The director has the men and women trade off on doing chores, as nothing would get done if they attempted to do them together. She learns some of this through Mr. McFee, who, as Mrs. Maggs tells her, doesn't believe in her dreams. McPhee corrects Ivy by saying that there's a difference in logic and belief, and he has nothing against Jane personally. When Jane and Mrs. Dimble are alone, Jane questions Ivy's familiarity, and Mrs. Dimble explains that there are no servants among them. They're all equal. This confuses Jane because the director had been talking about equality the previous day. Mrs. Maggs admits that it's hard to know what the director is talking about. When Mr. Dimble arrives, some of the group goes in to see the director. Mark is elated at his success in the nice. From all sides, the rides have gone well, and his contribution in the papers is helping immensely. He's proud to be counted among the inner circle. He's deduced from talks that if things go poorly for the nice, then Lord Feverstone, who is in charge of Edstow, will be sacrificed as a scapegoat. Mark doesn't wish Feverstone harm per se, but he realizes now more than ever that everyone has a role and when that role is done they are expendable. Even Wither has warmed up to Mark again. One day, Wither takes him aside and congratulates him on all his hard work. He then tells Mark that he hopes the rumors about his wife being sick mentally are untrue and that Mark should bring Jane to Belbury. Mark takes offense at the rumors and makes excuses to Wither, then leaves. He realizes that the worst thing for him would be to have Jane at Belbury; She would see right through what he has become and she wouldn't know or want to know how to play the game of keeping on everyone's good side. Later that day, The fairy meets with Mark and tells him that he is once again on everyone's bad side. Mark is shocked at the sudden change and is told that he gave Wither the cold shoulder earlier. Wither never extends the kind of courtesy of inviting family as he did to Mark. It was a first. Mark rejected this favor, undermining his loyalty to the nice. Wither is seen walking in the hall, and they end their conversation. At dinner, Mark sits next to Philostrato. He and others converse about the possibilities of ridding the world of all organic matter. Philostrato would love to have man-made trees that do not shed leaves, and inorganic birds, among seeing other changes. He says that the final thing will be making people live without needing bodies, and without reproducing or dying. Philostrato warns Mark not to go to the library, because he is on the outs with the inner circle. He takes Mark to his room instead and converses with him. He tells Mark that they really want him to be part of the inner circle. He then explains that the head wants Jane at Bellberry so that she can join them, adding that Mark will hear this affirmation from the head himself. Mark still thinks the head is Jules, a scientist who is the technical head of the gneiss, nice, but actually a pawn for the gneiss. Nice. Philostrato then turns off the lights so that the moon is illuminated and begins to tell Mark about life there. He speaks of beings that live who do not need to reproduce, and who have gotten rid of almost all organic life. Nature is being destroyed, and the brain is made to live indefinitely. This will spread across the universe, and the nice is helping with this. Strake then enters, and the three prepare to see the head. Strake talks of a new man being born from their research, and Philostrato affirms that the head is the first of these new men. None of them know who the actual progenitor of this new type of mankind will be, yet they are working to make it a reality. Philostrato then tells him that Alcassan is the head. They talk about the new man and how they are attempting to create a god who will have power over life and death. Mark is scared, but he knows that he has to go along with it or risk incurring the wrath of the powers that be. They egg him on and tell him not to be scared. All right, and that is the end of the summary. Before we dive into stuff I want to cover today, if this is your first episode, I suggest you at least begin with the first episode of That Hideous Strength, or even better, go back and do Abolition of Man. I'm covering That Hideous Strength. It is probably the most prophetic work of fiction in the last century. And so if you want to get the most out of this, it makes sense to start at the beginning, or even better, start at The Abolition of Man, because That Hideous Strength is just the illustration of what was a more academic work in The Abolition of Man. All right, so the first thing I want to talk about in this section uh, comes from this new character that we're being introduced to, McPhee. So McPhee is based off of Lewis's own tutor known as the Great Knock. Kirkpatrick was his name, and he was of Scottish descent, and he was kind of within that uh, Humean, empiricist, rationalist kind of thinking, and I'll explain that as we get introduced to McPhee. So there's this initial scene where uh, Jane meets McFee and Miss Dimble explains to Jane that here's your enemy within the house, and she's using that in a loose way, enemy. Uh, she means that Mr. McPhee doesn't think that Jane's dreams are real or veridical. They can't be verified. So here's a little uh, conversation that they have. Don't believe a word he says, Jane, said Mother Dimble. He's your prime enemy in this house. He doesn't believe in your dreams. Mrs. Dimble, said McPhee. I have repeatedly explained to you the distinction between a personal feeling of confidence and a logical satisfaction of the claims of evidence. The one is a psychological event, and the other a perpetual nuisance, said Mrs. Dimble. Never mind her, Mrs. Stork, said McPhee. I am, as I was saying, very glad to welcome you among us. The fact that I have found it my duty on several occasions to point out that no experimentum crucis has yet confirmed the hypothesis that your dreams are veridical, has no connection in the world with my personal attitude. "'Of course,' said Jane vaguely, now a little confused. "'I'm sure you have a right to your own opinions.' All the women laughed as McPhee, in a somewhat louder tone, replied, "'Mrs. Stoddick, I have no opinions on any subject in the world. I state the facts and exhibit the implications. If everyone indulged in fewer opinions—' he pronounced the word with emphatic disgust. There'd be less silly talking and printing in the world. All right, so in that little introduction there, we get the sense of McPhee as being this empiricist, meaning only things that can be verified empirically are therefore considered true. So he's skeptical about Jane's dreams because you can't actually test those. You know, for him, he needs that logical satisfaction of the claims of evidence. So if we go back to that understanding of reason as having that ratio, which is the syllogism, the logical part where you can formulate an argument, you can do hypothesis, you can test those, right? That's one side. Then you have the intellectus, which is the part that perceives um, or intuits things that are in accord with natural law. And so McPhee is very much on the ratio side. That is where he thinks truth lies. You can only say something is true if it can be put through that test empirically verified. So Jane's dreams are a matter of suspicion for him. So when he says that um, there has been no experimentum crucis that has yet confirmed the hypothesis that her dreams are veridical, that's all that kind of language that he needs there to be that experiment, experimentum crucis, meaning it goes through the test of experimentation to then say, okay, this is veridical. And so that's why he says he doesn't have any opinions, because as he understands it, he only is stating the facts as they've been empirically verified. So opinions, what use are they? You know, I don't have any of those, only the facts for him. Okay, so now what is really interesting about this character of McPhee is that he is part of the company at St. Anne's and he's the only Humean empiricist of their company. The rest of them uh, believe that there is such a thing as a spiritual realm, and he is skeptical of that. So what's interesting is that there are similarities between McPhee and then characters that are in the Nice, and very strong similarities. Uh, the Nice, at least some of them, portray themselves as being empiricists too. Uh, the scientist or physiologist Philostrato is probably the closest example here. So the difference between them though, is that McPhee is not a believer in what Lewis calls in a lot of essays, the myth of progress. So the guys at the nice, they think that there is this capital P progress that uh, they know what that is. And they are going to get man to that point. And ultimately it's the idea of immortality. They're going to make man immortal and man will take God's place. That's the idea. Uh, McPhee He is not a religious adherent of that doctrine that the nice is uh, imbibing in. So though the nice uh, portrays themselves as being this scientific organization, really they are uh, what Lewis would call scientism. That's what they believe in, which is that idea that uh, you can just use science to achieve this mythical progress, capital P progress, that, of course, these experts know what it is and we can bring it about that's what they're after. And that is very much a a religious kind of quest. They think that they are taking God's place. This is a new religion. Man is at the center. So McPhee, he does not go for that. And Lewis values this uh, empiricist part of man, the ability to realize the importance of the ratio and to have good sciences. That McPhee is kind of that guy. He is somebody who is interested in actually doing science and not putting on this pseudo-ethical system upon it, and yet claiming it's science, because he realizes that that's not what science does. Science can't go from the is to the ought. McPhee recognizes the bounds of science, and Lewis is somebody who is uh, you know, on board with that of saying... Okay, I disagree with McPhee ultimately in his, you know, stopping and saying there there is nothing beyond just the physical, but yet McPhee has got it right in terms of recognizing the limits of science. So kind of like Hingist from an earlier chapter, who is the character that Lewis put in there to show that, hey, I'm not attacking science here. Hingist is actually a scientist. He was that chemist who was a real scientist, and he was killed because he wouldn't go for the religious part of the nice. And McPhee is a, a similar character to Hingist. Lewis is putting him in there as well to make a similar point that Lewis is not against the sciences. Just like in Abolition of Man, where he said that You know, there will be those who say that I'm attacking sciences. And he says, no, I am defending sciences. I'm defend or I'm attacking this pseudoscience. All right. So we'll have more on McPhee in later chapters, uh, but that'll be enough for now. Also in this section where we were having this conversation with Jane and McPhee and uh, Mrs. Dimble, there's also this short interaction between Jane and Mrs. Dimble that draws us back to the last chapter. Uh, where they were talking about gender, where Jane and uh, the director were talking about gender. Okay, so this is Mrs. This is Dimble talking. My dear, the director is a very wise man, but he is a man, after all, and an unmarried man at that. Some of what he says, or what the masters say about marriage, does seem to me to be a lot of fuss about something so simple and natural that it oughtn't to need saying at all. But I suppose there are young women nowadays who need to be told it. And then Jane responds to that by saying, You haven't got much use for young women who do, I see. And then Mrs. Nimble, Well, perhaps I'm unfair. Things were easier for us. We were brought up on stories with happy endings and on the prayer book. We always intended to love, honor, and obey. And we had figures, and we wore petticoats, and we liked waltzes. Okay, so in that brief interaction, we see this difference in upbringing from Jane to Mrs. Dimble. And Mrs. Dimble is saying that the stuff that the director was telling you, Jane, it's kind of seems silly to me that he was talking about that as a man, because I get that fully as a woman is what she's saying, because I was brought up properly. Jane has not been brought up that same way. And this is Lewis making comments about how uh, education properly understood has shifted. And this is the case with both Jane and Mark. They didn't have the kind of education that uh, Mrs. Dimble or Mr. Dimble had. All right. And the final point I want to cover is this conversation that Mark has with Philostrato and a couple of others about this idea of getting past organic life. So I'll just do a couple of different short sections and we'll comment on these as we go. So Mark is talking with Philostrato and Philostrato explaining his vision for, you know, how he's going to clean the planet is kind of how he's putting it. It sounds, said Mark, like abolishing pretty well all organic life. And then Philostrato says, And why not? It is simple hygiene. And then this idea is developed further. Uh, A guy named Gold, he says, What are you driving at, Professor? Said Gold. After all, we are organisms ourselves. So that's the obvious question, right? You know, if you're going to try to get past organic life. Well, what about us? We are organic life. So Philostrato answers Gold. He says, I grant it. That is the point. In us, organic life has produced Mind. Capital M, Mind. Okay? That's the the key thing that it has produced. It has done its work. So organic life has done its work. After that, we want no more of it. We do not want the world any longer furred over with organic life, like furs and animal fur. Like what you call the blue mold, all sprouting and budding and breeding and decaying. We must get rid of it. By little and little, of course. Slowly, we learn how. Learn to make our brains live with less and less body. Learn to build our bodies directly with chemicals. No longer have to stuff them full of dead brutes and weeds. Learn how to reproduce ourselves without copulation. Okay, so we see in that passage just how incredibly prescient Lewis is in writing this in 1943. This is very similar to the transhumanist push today. The idea is that you want to preserve the brain, the mind. That is the thing that nature has produced that now we want to preserve. And so we're going to artificially preserve that somehow, whether neural link or some other uh, feat. And a key part of that project there at the end was they're trying to separate the propagation of the species from copulation. They have to remove it from sex because obviously that ties into then families and things uh, that naturally want to conserve certain values ethical principles, and they got to get past that. So a key aspect here is that you got to remove, um, you know, reproducing or preserving the species with just the mind, you know, which maybe not you know, properly called the species at all, but you get the point. You got to get sex out of this. So after he, he says, you know, we can reproduce ourselves without copulation. Then another guy says, uh, that doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun. And then, uh, whether or not, whether Phil goes on to say, you would understand, if you were peasants, who would try to work with stallions and bulls? So, these are animals that have not been castrated. Think back to Abolition of Man at the end of chapter one. We castrate and bid the geldings be fruitful, was the line Lewis used. See that same kind of talk here. Who would try to work with stallions and bulls, right? They, they are too wild. They are too um, untamable. They won't just be sheep that do everything you wish. No, no, we want geldings and oxen. Geldings and oxen, those are creatures that are you the know, same as a stallion and bull in terms of the species, but they've had their balls removed. They've been castrated. There will never be peace and order and discipline so long as there is sex. When man has thrown it away, then he will become finally governable. So for Philostrato and the nice, the key to being able to govern people is to remove that desire for freedom. And they can do that by removing the uh, propagation of the species from peasants, as Philostrato put it there, remove it from them, and instead put it in their own hands, the hands of guys like Philostrato, the experts. They will be in charge of reproduction if you can get it separated from actual sex copulation. As Philostrato puts it, the next page, he says that they're trying to get past these three things, birth, breeding, and death. They're trying to uh, create a humanity that can live without those three things. And that brings us to the passage that I opened this episode with, where Mark, after talking to Philostrato about this, he asks him, but how do we do all this? Philostrato says, I will tell you all that another time. The head has many sources of information. For the moment, I speak only to inspire you. I speak that you may know what can be done, what shall be done here. This institution, Dio Mio, It is for something better than housing, and vaccinations, and faster trains, and curing the people of cancer. It is for the conquest of death, or for the conquest of organic life, if you prefer. They are the same thing. It is to bring out of that cocoon of organic life which sheltered the babyhood of mind the new man, that's capital N, capital M, the man who will not die, the artificial man free from nature. Nature is the ladder we have climbed up by. Now we kick her away. And that's reminiscent of Abolition of Man, Chapter 3, where Lewis is saying that nature has got us this far, and if we take that final step and we then destroy man's connection with the natural law, we'll have abolished man. We'll have kicked that ladder away. And as Lewis knows, by doing so, then we'll find that we are nothing but mere nature in the end. We'll have removed the thing that actually separated us from mere nature but philostrato is taking a very different view he is one of those conditioners he wants to have his cake and eat it too he wants to use nature as a tool a uh, very utilitarian mindset and then he still wants to say that there is still some sort of ethical framework some um, higher principle something that transcends just the natural uh, phenomenon the you know the biochemical um, makeup of humanity something that is transcendent past that but then he goes on to admit that all that that is, all that the uh, transcendent principle is that he wants to try and appeal to is merely whatever the man or few men in power say it is. So his his whole system ends up failing, and he admits as much. He just doesn't recognize that it's failing. All right, so here's where he uh, goes on to do what I was just talking about. He says that we're conquering space and time, and then Strake, that uh, Mad Parson, the liberation theology guy. He chimes in, he says, it is the beginning of man immortal and man ubiquitous, said Strake, man on the throne of the universe. It is what all the prophecies really meant. And Philostrato then points out that uh, there will only be some who are selected for eternal life. And of course, they are the ones doing the selecting. He says later, he says, you know, as well as I do, that man's power over nature means the power of some men, over other men, with nature as the instrument. So there it is. That's his giveaway. That's the the point I was saying, where they want to have some sort of transcendent thing that is the guiding principle, and that's exactly what it is right here. That it's some one man over other men, using nature as the instrument. It's whatever that one man decides is true, good, and beautiful. They are the final arbiter. They are that Nietzschean Ubermensch. God is dead, so they have taken the place. And then this is exactly what uh, Philostrato and Strake say on the next page. Mark says, God, said Mark, how does he come into it? I don't believe in God. But my friend, said Philostrato, does it follow that because there was no God in the past, that there will be no God also in the future? Don't you see, said Strake, that we are offering you the unspeakable glory of being present at the creation of God Almighty. So, this ties back in perfectly with the title of the book, That Hideous Strength, which is reference to the uh, Tower of Babel and the attempt to make a name for themselves. They want to be like the gods. That's what Strake, Philostrato, that's what they want to do. They want to be like the gods, make a name for themselves. So they are people that think there there is no God, and now they are going to create him. And I'm going to end it there for this week. If you like the show, please take a sec. Go on your podcast app, wherever you're listening to it, click the five stars. That'll help spread the show, get it up there so people can find it easier. And if you have time, you could even leave a review. You can find the show's page on Instagram at Min And later this week, I'm going to put out an episode covering an essay of Lewis's that's extremely relevant for that hideous strength. As a king governs by his executive, So reason and man must rule the mere appetites by means of the spirited element, the chest, magnanimity, sentiment. These are the indispensable liaison officers between cerebral man and visceral man. It may even be said that it is by this middle element that man is man, for by his intellect he is mere spirit, by his appetite, mere animal. See you next week.